This morning we're going to look at the tribulation, that period of time that I've been somewhat introducing and talking about in terms of Jewish eschatology. So we started to look at that last time and didn't get too far into it. I gave you, in fact, I gave you an introduction. And I mentioned that what we're looking at, when we look at eschatology, you need to think Jewish. Everything is Jewish. Eschatology is Jewish. And if you have that in your mind, then everything kind of makes sense and it fits together very well because everything else is related to Jewish eschatology. So we've talked already about Israel's failure and discipline. And right now we're in the period where Israel is still under that discipline. Paul refers to it in the New Testament. Jesus predicted it in the Olivet Discourse. And that period won't end until the next major event. We saw that in uh, our study of Israel itself in terms of eschatology. Another major element that you see over and over and over is the idea of tribulation. That's what we're looking at. So these are the major features of Jewish eschatology. And because this is Jewish, I've said over and over that what we're talking about here, uh, the church is not involved. The church is not involved in the tribulation. There's going to be a restoration. That's the main purpose of this period of time is to bring Israel to faith in the Messiah. And the Messiah will return at the end of that tribulation period. And prophecy... Old Testament as well as New Testament speaks in terms of Messiah establishing the kingdom. So the kingdom is a major element of Jewish eschatology. And you fit everything else. You fit the Gentiles into this scheme, into this eschatology. You fit the church also into that as well. So we're going to devote our time to the tribulation this morning. Anything that happens during the church age... I don't see fulfillments. What I see is maybe things are preparing for a time of fulfillment, but things like what Jesus predicts in the Olivet Discourse, I think that is a description of the tribulation and everything following the tribulation. So I don't see fulfillments today. The only exception is the regathering of Israel, which fulfills not what Jesus is is talking about in the Olivet Discourse, but what... Passages like Ezekiel speak of the initial stages of Israel's regathering. So that's kind of where we're at. Last time I gave you the the basis for this seven-year period of time. Daniel was given a vision, and he records it. And it's very, very specific. In fact, it's one of the most interesting, the most specific prophecies of all of the Bible. It gives the Jewish time frame for all things future from Daniel's time. It gives the beginning of that time frame, a decree that is issued, and the most likely decree is that of Artaxerxes, and that's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that date, historians assign about 444 B.C., and we have a time frame given for Israel's future history. And in that time frame, God is going to essentially bring all things to consummation, particularly things related to sin. 
And we saw last time that Daniel predicts that there'll be 69 weeks before Messiah, the prince, Messiah the prince, and he will be cut off. And Daniel refers in that little phrase to probably the crucifixion. It's not crystal clear, but with all the other passages, that makes a lot of sense. The time frame ends in 33 AD, according to some calculations. So Robert Anderson, for one, and you can calculate the number of days using a prophetic year of 360 days. Very precise. That, according to the calculation, ends on Palm Sunday, the week that Christ dies on the cross. So Messiah is cut off. There seems to be implied a gap of time. It's not specified. So there's one week remaining of, his, of Jewish history where God is focusing on the nation of Israel. We have this gap, and in this gap is a time of discipline for the nation. They were scattered for most of that time. They were regathered in 1948. And in that, we have the church age, which is kind of within that indefinite period of time. Obviously, we've been living for 2,000 years now during church age, or approximately. Uh, Vivian asked about the day of the Lord, so this is the context to talk about the day of the Lord, because this is very frequently associated with this period of time, with the period called the tribulation. Now, if you look up all of the usages of the word day of the Lord, you find several in the Old Testament, and there's quite a few in the New Testament as well. And it, in some occasions, uses the phrase day of the Lord, Yahweh, Yom, or Yom Yahweh, day of the Lord, in reference to some passages that took place in Old Testament time. I think one of those is Joel 1, 15 through 20, where it identifies this plague of locusts, and it uses the word the day of the Lord in reference to that particular judgment in the day of Joel. Is there a double fulfillment there? In that passage, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so in that passage. And there's others as well, besides the Joel passage, but that's probably one of the clearest ones, where it's associated with a very specific thing that occurred in in time. Yeah, the reason I wondered about that is because of, you know, Joel 2 and Acts. Right, and Joel 2 does, in fact, look ahead, and that's the passage that Peter uses to interpret the day of Pentecost, but even elements of it are not fulfilled until a future day. Okay, A reference to the tribulation period itself, and there's many passages relating to that and Israel. A clear one is Malachi 5.4. Eric, why don't you start us off on that one? And Mark, look up Isaiah 2.12. Jim, Zechariah 14.1. There's others as well that probably are speaking of this period of time that is Jewish that we can identify as Daniel's 70th week. Uh, You could include those Deuteronomy passages. You could include that Leviticus passage as well. Although the day of the Lord is not used, but it describes that seven-year period. Malachi 5.4. I mean, sorry about that. 4.5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah 
the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay. And if you put the context of the coming of Elijah, and if he's one of the two witnesses, he seemed, Malachi puts him at the very beginning. And that's where we put him in the book of Revelation. And he's talking about that terrible day of the Lord, probably a clear reference to this seven-year period of time. See that there? Isaiah 2.12, the second coming. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And if you keep reading in the context, it's a passage that refers to the coming of Messiah and probably second coming. A day, the day. And by the way, there are phrases that omit the word Lord But in the context, you can see that it's the day of the Lord or passages that probably are associated with the same concept. And there's even a passage that refers to the millennial kingdom, Zechariah 14.1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Okay. Putting all the passages together, it appears personally that He's not talking about a 24-hour period. He's talking about a day in a general sense. And the word day is used in that way in several places in terms of a general sense. In fact, we use the word day similarly as well. You might refer to in the days of my parents when they were younger or something. In other words, when your parents... And you're not talking about a particular day. You're talking about in their time frame or in their age or the day of your grandparents, whatever. We use that word, and the Bible uses it in a similar way. And I think the day of the Lord is that kind of a usage where it's a a word that refers to, the way I like to put it, is God's intervention in history. And when God intervenes in history, it doesn't always take just 24 hours to complete it helps with that millennium to, to compare verse 4 and verse 14. Okay, you want to read it? Read 14.1 and then 4 14, again. 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So that includes the second coming as well. In fact, the whole passage kind of is a composite of second coming and millennial kingdom. I may have missed it, but are you just looking at Old Testament or is that? No, there's New Testament verses. I mean, are you going to look at New Testament? No, oh, but I can the, give you some. Well, the question that I had when I asked you about it was back there in Thessalonians when he's talking yes. about the rapture, and then in verse five he says, "Now it's the times and the epochs, brethren. You have no need of anything to get to." For you yourselves know for well that the day of the Lord will come just like you Yes. So I was just wondering how that related. Well, that's that's a verse that you could group with the second coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Even though he's just finished talking about the rapture? Well, it may be the rapture. That aspect of the second coming, the first phase of the second coming, of the first phase of the second coming, the rapture. Because I was just trying mm-hmm. to understand how that, yeah. how they fit together. In those well, the point I'm making is when this word is used, it's not used of one specific event or even a time frame, it probably is looking at the consummation of history where God is going to intervene in a very dramatic way and do mighty things. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was when God intervened in judgment, and the Joel passage is an example 
God sent this plague. This is the day of the Lord. It's a visitation. It's an intervention. The composite of the tribulation, second coming, and the millennium. God is going to do spectacular things. He's going to intervene in very directly in world history. He's going to accomplish things in rapid succession that are going to be unmistakably divine acts. So the day of the Lord, I look at it as the intervention of God to fulfill either something that he's trying to accomplish, and when it's referring to the end times, it's when God is bringing everything to consummation. And these things are going to take place in rapid succession. And it's going to be spectacular and evident that God is the one that's doing it. So God intervening to bring judgment in the tribulation period, God intervening to return to earth to establish a kingdom, God intervening to do everything it takes to establish that kingdom. That's the day of the Lord. You could even include, and in fact there's a New Testament passage that probably looks at the eternal state, and it uses the day of the Lord. Let me see if I can find it in my notes here. Yeah, Second Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. That's the earth. And then he goes on and talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And he uses the word in uh, verse 3, The day of the Lord will come. You can add verse 12 to that as well. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's a supernatural intervention to change everything, destroying the earth and bringing in an eternal state. I think your comment uh, that speaks to the consummation of the ages is really helpful because... I don't know if other people are this way, but I think I tend to think about things in terms of events. And it's more than one event. He's talking about a period of time where a lot of events are occurring. Exactly. Yep, and that's probably the best way to, to look at it. Okay, so that's your introduction to this period of time. And let's conclude by looking at a little bit of the nature of the tribulation. Turn back to the book of Daniel, and this this time chapter 9. We've already looked at it once, so let me just put it more in a chart and look at it a little bit more. This is the basis of this period of time. Daniel gives it to us all the way back in Daniel's time, and it's Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And let's read it. Where did we leave off? Sheila, I think. Why don't you start? 9, first of all, 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and holy city to finish this, to make reconciliation, to bring in everlasting rest, to seal up vision and prosperity. Now that's kind of a summary statement. And what he's saying here, God is going to wrap up world history, essentially, in 70 weeks. Now, the word, the Hebrew word for weeks there is Shabua, and it refers, it, it's used kind of in a general way, seven somethings, or seven, uh, a Shabua is seven of something, and we have 70 Shabuas, so seven times 70, 490 years, basically, in this context. In some context, it refers to days, a Shabua as seven days, or a week. 
that's why it's translated weeks. But these are not ordinary weeks. These are weeks of years. It's a Shabuah. And what he's saying is God is going to wrap up world history in 70 Shabuahs, or 490 years. This is the rest of Jewish history. 70 Shabuahs. For your people, your holy city, in other words, for Jerusalem, and within that 70 weeks, to finish transgression, he's going to wrap up all of the issues of sin. To make an end of sin, he's going to bring sin to its end. To make atonement for iniquity, in other words, he's going to offer the ultimate sacrifice in this 70 weeks. And he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Righteousness is going to be established, which looks to a kingdom here. And it's going to seal up vision and prophecy. He's going to fulfill visions and prophecies. And I would say covenants. And to anoint the most holy place. In other words, where God dwells will be anointed and the focus of all things. Seventy weeks. Vivian, 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Okay, so he's going to give us the beginning of it. Very precise. And he says there's going to be seven weeks, seven Shabuas, and 62. And he's assuming that you can add, right? And if you add 7 to 62, what do you you end up with? 69 weeks. So he's giving us a time frame, and he's giving us the beginning from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Very specific. That's part of probably Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. So we have a starting point. And there's going to be 69 weeks until Messiah, the prince. Until then, there'll be the 7 plus the 62 And it'll be built again, probably a sanctuary or a city with plaza and moat. And even in times of distress, during a tribulation period. Very intra, very precise. You want to put it on a timeline like we like to do here. 444, from the issuing of a decree to restore. And like I said, probably Artaxerxes. There are several decrees, by the way. And this is probably the one to rebuild until Messiah the Prince, and when he was cut off, 33 A.D., and a few have calculated the specifics on that, but I'll give you the results. I mean, 62 plus 7 times 360, which is a prophetic year, 360 days equals 173,880 days. And the calculation that has been done ends on Palm Sunday before Christ is crucified. And then we have 26, Eric. This is after the 69. Then after the 62 weeks. Now, it's assumed that you keep, yeah, plus the 7. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. There's going to be tribulation determined, there's desolation determined. But before that, Messiah will be cut off. That's probably an allusion to the crucifixion. And have nothing. 
and the people of the prince, this is that first prince, Gentile prince, will destroy the city and sanctuary. That possibly could be 70 AD, but this could also have a double fulfillment. So Messiah is cut off, and the city is destroyed. 70 AD is that line there. And it's not mentioned, but there is a gap, because there's after the 70 weeks, there's some things that take place. And then the last verse there, Mark. This is the this is the, the he is the prince that's gonna destroy the city. Keep reading. And he will make a firm covenant with the the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He will make a firm covenant for a week. This is the beginning of the 70th week. The week that remains. 69 have passed. Messiah cut off. There's a gap in there. It's not specified. And then the clock will start again at the beginning of this week. And we have what starts that is this firm covenant with the many. It's for one one Shabuah. And if these others are years, then that Shabuah is a week of years, one of them, seven years. And then there's something that's going to take place in the middle. And in the middle, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And here's the, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's where Jesus picks up in the Olivet Discourse. He's referring to that specific in the middle of this seven-year period of time. So we have... A gap, and we'll put the time frame of the church in there. And we have a 70th week that's split in two parts because in the middle something's going to happen. At the beginning, a firm covenant, and then in the middle, the abomination. And at the end, it's not mentioned here, but putting eschatology together, Revelation 19:11, Messiah returns at the end of the 70th week. That 70th week is the period that we would describe technically as tribulation. I think Daniel defines it very specific. We are not in that week yet. The Jewish eschatological clock has not started up again yet. What will start it up is that firm covenant. And then Messiah will establish the kingdom, which is after the seven years. Mm-hmm. The covenant is between and Israel. Those are the parties. The clock is going to start again with this firm covenant. Daniel specifies that, verse 27. And that starts the Jewish clock ticking again. And there's going to be one week of years. We talked about that. It's divided into two, three and a half year periods. Daniel tells us that something happens in the middle. And we'll look at that later. And then Messiah returns after that week. And then that continues the rest of Jewish eschatology. We have the kingdom after that. So Daniel lays all of this out in just a few verses there. So we looked at that. That's the basis for this 70th week. There's 70 total, and one still remains to be fulfilled. And I believe it's future from our perspective from our time frame. Yep. Was there 
you know, given the time frame of the 100,000, 880 days, were, were there those that were actually amongst, the, other than amongst the Israelites? Yeah, other than Simeon had received, but I mean, because looking back, you can believe it. Yeah. But, well, you can you know, look forward, too. I mean, they could have uh, they could have taken those numbers and calculated pretty precisely when Messiah would arrive. Well, that's what I'm saying. Was there, is there any indication of those that were... I'm not aware of any work that was done like that among the Jews, but I'm sure there there were some, and some uh, took the passage literally. Eric? Were the Jewish scholars trying to virtualize it then instead of taking it literally? Possibly, because... what we see today. Yes, because before the coming of Christ, that was a major interpretive approach, was spiritualizing passage. I had another thought that the seven weeks, if, you know, seven times seven is forty-nine. Uh, according to the calendar, that that would put us at the end of Malachi, the four hundred year of silence. Was the, the gap between after Malachi and then the New Testament starts up again? Um, no, R- roughly. I mean, it's not precise. Malachi is about four fifteen. That's about when it was written. No, what I'm saying from four forty-four, if you add forty-nine, the, the seven weeks, forty-nine years, that puts you roughly at four hundred. Or close to the beginning of the 400 years of silence. Yes. Yeah. No communication from the Lord. Yeah, there could have been, and there was there was a high level of expectation of Messiah coming in the first century, and there were false Christs, etc. In that time frame. I guess that's what they. But I don't know. I don't know if they calculated precisely and said, "Hey, based on Daniel, we believe this." I was wondering why why did he do 62 weeks and seven weeks? Why didn't he just say 69? You know, why did he divide? Ask him. Maybe it was an indication that the. Ask him where to get there. Yeah. Yeah, see how well you can calculate. So that's the basis of this 70 year period, and it's very precise, and there's references in Daniel, there's references in the book of Revelation, particularly concerning this period of time. Now it's broken up every time into two parts. And there's references, for example, in terms of, for example, these are the examples that occur in Scripture. The two witnesses, it speaks of them relating to 1260 days. In other words, they're going to prophesy for 1260 days. To me, it seems, it's not clear, but it seems like the best time frame would be at the very beginning, because that's when the need for prophetic word is needed again. I believe that they probably kick off this revival amongst the nation of Israel. We have two prophets, two witnesses. We we talked a little bit about them. But the point I'm making here is these references, not just in Daniel, but also in the book of Revelation that is highly based on Daniel. 1260 days, so it's put in terms of days. Jerusalem is going to be trod by the Gentiles. For 42 months. That's also in the book of Revelation. 42 months. And when we look at 42 months, what is that? Three and a half years again. Now that's probably the last three and a half. And that's in the same context as the two witnesses. Revelation 11. There's also, speaking of Antichrist, he exercises authority for 42 months. And that's in Revelation 13, 5. 42 months again. Both of those are probably descriptions of the last three and a half. There's also a reference to time, times, plural, and half a time. And I explain how that cryptic description is related to three and a half years. 
and it speaks of Antichrist rising in that time. That's Daniel 7, 23 through 25, where it uses that. And then in Daniel 12, 7, also Revelation 12, 14, we have another reference to time, times, and half a time, where it speaks of the persecution of God's people. And that's probably the second half. The rise of Antichrist could be a reference to the first three and a half, where he rises in that period of time. And then he has authority for 42 months, where he exercises authority over the the whole world eventually. There's also a reference to Israel fleeing into the wilderness, 1260 days. That's probably the second half as well. That's Revelation 12.6. We looked at that last time. So at least six references to three and a half years, and some of them to the first, some of them to the second, and obviously the total is that 70th week or seven-year period of time. We call that tribulation, and I'm going to be using this chart as we've already been using it to refer to that period of time. And we'll put different events on that time frame. Well, let's look at the purpose. What is the main purpose of the seven years? If it's so so significant, so important, that it's referred to several times in these different ways and specified very precisely in Daniel, and I think it's referred to without dating or without time frame, but it's referred to over and over in Scripture, all the way back to in Leviticus 26. So even before Israel is a nation, even before Israel goes into the wilderness, God, through the Holy Spirit, is already predicting this period of time. So it must have a very significant purpose, and I see at least a twofold purpose. Number one, This is the period of time where God is going to bring salvation to the nation of Israel. And it's during this period of time, as a byproduct of that, the nations will also come into a saving relationship. This is the only positive thing that takes place during this seven-year period of time. And I mentioned that what will be observed when we talked about Israel, we said that not only is Israel the focus of this period of time, But this is going to fulfill all of those passages of Israel's salvation. Even in the New Testament, like uh, Romans 11, where Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. It's in this time frame. The purpose of this period of time is to bring Israel to their knees, to the realization that they've missed the Messiah in the first century, but they can trust in him now to bring to the realization of Israel that there's no other hope apart from Messiah. And Messiah, in fact, is evident. And the prophets will probably focus on Messiah and show that Jesus is, in fact, Messiah. As a result, somewhat of a byproduct of that, we saw that the ministry of the 144,000 will, in fact, they will be the first converts They will go throughout the world, and they will be evangelists, and they will arouse within the nations also the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, and there'll be a massive turning. This will be the greatest revival that the world has ever seen in the past, and will ever see even in the future, except for, obviously, during the seven-year period. 
That is the only positive thing that takes place during this seven-year horrendous period of time. So it's for salvation for Israel and for the nation. To the Jew first, through the two prophets that I think stimulate the 144,000 and they respond at the first part of the tribulation period and then they go out and they evangelize. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7. Now the second purpose, and this is the instrument or the instrumentality, I believe, that God uses to bring about this massive revival. And that is the second purpose. It's for judgment. It's for the judgment of the nations, primarily, and primarily nations that historically and at the end of the age, the nations that are persecuting, the nations that are against the nation of Israel, God's, God's people. So primarily what takes place during this period of time, and it's described in great detail, particularly in the book of Revelation, we'll look at some of those judgments. Those judgments are upon basically the nations. Now, you can include the nation of Israel in terms of there's going to be an unbelieving element and they will suffer the judgments as well. Others will respond to those judgments and realize if we don't trust in Messiah, we're doomed. And that's where there'll be a massive turning. So we're going to see lots of judgment. And that's the instrumentality that God will use to bring about the first purpose of this period of time. Make sense? So it's for Israel primarily, but it has a secondary purpose for unbelievers. God always provides opportunity for believers to believe, though it's too late. So last time we were looking at the basis of the tribulation, the the nature of the tribulation. We saw the basis in Daniel. Let's look at the major conditions. The major conditions. And I'm going to just somewhat summarize this and then we'll take a look at some of these in more in more detail. One thing that I'm going to stress and have already is that this is a unique period of time. Never in the past has there ever been a period of time like this, and Jesus says there never will be in the future. And there are several things that we can mention concerning the uniqueness. In fact, let's look these things up. Mark, do you want to start with Revelation 7.14? Uh, Jim, do you want to take Matthew 24.21? And by the way, you might keep your fingers in these passages because some of these we'll come back to, particularly like Matthew 24. Go ahead and read that one, Mark. Revelation 7, 14. I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, and I think he's referring in that context of the 144,000 and probably the converts if I remember the context. But note what it says, who have come out of what? The great tribulation. That's the uniqueness of it. This is a great tribulation. And it's unprecedented. Jesus brings that out in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great, using the same little phrase, tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. This is the uniqueness of it. There's never been a time like this. And he goes on, until now, nor ever shall. There's not going to be a period of time 
after this period of time, this great tribulation. It is unprecedented. It is unique. It is different. It's not like other periods of tribulation. The church has gone through periods of persecution. Israel has experienced lots of persecution throughout its history. In fact, the history of Israel is really one of children of Israel being persecuted. Most, most age, they have been persecuted. Jesus says, this is different. This is unique. It has never been this way. This is a unique period of time. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the church does not go through this period of time because it doesn't have anything to do with the church. And it's a unique period, pointing to a unique purpose, pointing to all of the prophecies that relate to the nation of Israel. Read Revelation 3.10, and we'll have uh, Eric read Revelation 9.6. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is upon the whole to test those who dwell on the earth. He's referring to this period of time, this period, he calls it a period of testing, but don't miss the other phrase, worldwide. A lot of persecution of the nation of Israel has been isolated. There's been some exceptions but it's usually been localized and it's been uh, somewhat isolated in terms of geography. But Revelation 3.10 says it's worldwide. That makes it unique. And we're going to see, I'm not going to expand it here, but we're going to see that this is the most eventful period of Bible prophecy. There are more prophecies relating to this seven-year period of time than any other event of eschatology. Most eventful. If you were to add them up, and I haven't counted them, but you'll see that there are hundreds of them, and sometimes whole paragraphs. And in fact, like the Olivet Discourse, the major portion of the Olivet Discourse pertains to this period of time. In fact, there are more chapters in the book of Revelation that refer to this period of time than any other chapter in the book of Revelation all the way from chapter 6 through, you could even include 19 in the book of Revelation, pertain to this period of time. So it's the most eventful event that's described in Bible prophecy. And notice 9.6. You got that one, Eric? In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Death is so horrendous that death is preferred but people will not be able to uh, escape it. So these and other things make this period of time very, very unique. You could add to the list as well. And we've referred to some of those, like there's no mention of the church in any of the passages that refer to this period of time, unless you spiritualize them, but in terms of ecclesia, the word for church, it does not occur in terms of people on earth during that seven-year period of time. So I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because the tribulation is unique. So that's something of the uniqueness of it. Some of the major themes that we're going to look at, this is still introductory, and these are just major themes. And one of them, this is Satan's greatest hour. This is his finest hour that he is actually, we're going to see a passage where he's confined to earth. So he is going to 
effect more destruction on people and on the earth itself than any other period of history. This is his last efforts to derail the plan of God, the last efforts to accumulate people for himself. So we could describe it as Satan's finest hour. The satanic world is given somewhat free reign during this period of time. There's going to be lots of demonic activity. And we're going to see one of the trumpet judgments is a whole army of demonic spirits probably going out into the world, having effect. This is also man's final product. In other words, this is the best that man can do. There's going to be a worldwide religion, and this is the best that man can do. So man's final product, it's a time when man does as he pleases, and you're going to see the product of that. Even worse than the period of the judges. Remember, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's going to be a period like that, and it's going to be far more horrendous than that period of the judges. That was a dark time in Israel's history. This will be a dark time in the world's history. It'll be a time like worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be a time worse than the worst days of the nation of Israel. It'll be a transition from Gentile times of destruction to a time where the only hope is Messiah and his kingdom. This is man's kingdom, man's final product. It'll be the world's final uniting. It'll be one world government, one world economy, one world culture, one world religion, all united, raising its fist against God. There have been prototypes, there have been, on a smaller scale, examples throughout world history. Babylon might be one, Babel might be another one. You might even say the Egyptian empire in terms of a localized uniting. When the children of Israel were in bondage, there are several examples of these prototypes. But this will be the ultimate in the world uniting, and it will be the final one. You could also describe it as God's closing judgments. It will begin a period of great judgment. And some of these judgments will be reminiscent of some of the past judgments. Some of the judgments will be reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. There will be things falling out of the sky with great destruction. Some of the trumpet judgments will be reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. And some of the bowl judgments will be similar So we have God's closing judgments, and that's the main feature of this period of time, where he's bringing things to consummation, wrapping up basically world history before the time of Messiah. It's also Israel's ultimate salvation, where Israel will come into a saving relationship. It'll also be a time of refining the nation of Israel, preparing them for the millennial kingdom and to reign with their Messiah, Israel's ultimate salvation. So as you can see, you might even include these as adding to the uniqueness of this period of time because things are coming to a consummation. Number six, it's the world's greatest revival. I've been mentioning that before. The greatest revival that the world has ever seen or will ever see. Initiated by the two prophets and then affected by the 144,000. And it's during this period of time that God even uses angelic instrumentality to present the gospel. 
every person will hear the gospel during this period of time. This is where Matthew 24 will be fulfilled, where the gospel will go through the whole world. Some, from the viewpoint that I shared, I think, last time, or at least sometime before, that believe the rapture won't take place until we present the gospel to the whole world, I think it's a misinterpretation. That passage won't be fulfilled till I think, this period of time, based on the Olivet Discourse and the context of it. That interpretation is an attempt to bring kind of fulfillment to some of the things that Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse, which I think is a mistake. Okay? And we always need seven things, right? <clears throat> so number seven, this is God's consummating work, where he's going to begin the process of wrapping up world history, bring things to consummation, where his character will be revealed like it's never been seen before. And there'll be some aspects that are emphasized more than others. For example, his justice, his judgment, his wrath. Those will be most evident during this period of time. But there'll also be grace. There'll also be mercy. And obviously there's salvation in this period of time. It'll be very evident. Those that are believers will stand out from those that are not. And in fact, they'll stand out in that they will experience more suffering than perhaps any believers at any point as well. There'll be a new holocaust during this period of time. Most of the believers will die, including uh, the Jewish converts as well. So God's going to bring things to consummation. He's going to begin fulfilling all of those promises of Old Testament and New Testament. He's going to bring the covenants to their fulfillment as well. Now, they won't entirely be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, but the process is going to begin here. So those are kind of the major themes, if you will. Satan and what he can do, man and what he can do, the whole world uniting, God and what God is doing, Israel, a main focus, believers during this period of time, a new group, and then back to God again in terms of general plan. Major conditions. Here's some of the characteristics. And these just come from different phrases that occur that describe this period of time. And we have a series of passages we're going to want to look up. Vivian, why don't you do Zephaniah and Hanada do Isaiah 24. And I'll have Vivian go back since she'll be in Zephaniah. And Mark, why don't you do John Okay, Zephaniah. Here, here are some descriptions, and there's several others as well that emphasize the severity of this period of time. And these, these are just, as we read them, these are just representative that emphasize, first of all, severity. Go ahead, 14, and you don't need to read them all, but you, we'll, get, we'll get the feel of it as you get into it. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very Okay, already, great Day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Remember, we talked about that. We talked about what that means. In other words, the time when God is intervening in history to bring about his purposes and plans. Keep reading. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and destruction, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, and a day of trumpet and battle cry against the four cities, against okay. like cornered. Okay, did you notice that? And he's going to continue to describe it 
all the way into verse 18 using similar language here. Day of wrath, day of trouble, day of distress, day of destruction and desolation, day of darkness and gloom, clouds, thick darkness. Get all that? That's why Jesus says there's never been a time like that. It's, it, it's, it's so severe. Amos also, if you want another verse, Amos 5.18. It'll be darkness, not light. The day of the Lord is darkness, even gloom with no brightness in it. Malachi 4.1, it's burning like a furnace. It's a time of burning like a furnace. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze using the imagery of fire. It's like hell, hell on earth. Then Isaiah 24, you've got that one, Hanada. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute, what do I have on there? Why don't you start with 3 and 4 and then skip to 19. The earth will be completely laid waste. Completely laid waste. The earth. And totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes. The exalted of the earth. Wow. Devastation. Now skip to 19. Same chapter. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that is that it falls, um, never to rise again. Okay, and you can read on and on and on. It has more descriptive phrases like that. This describes it more. See, I'll let you read on. Yes. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above, the kings on the earth. That's good enough. You could go on if you, if you want for your notes. Isaiah thirty-four, two and three, similar language. Speaking of the Lord's indignation, the Lord's wrath, he has utterly destroyed them, utterly destroyed them. What was that, 34 what? 34, 2 and 3, Joel 2, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, thick darkness. We saw that in Zephaniah, and there's other passages as well. There's New Testament passages besides those. Uh, We have descriptive phrases. We already saw wrath, we've seen Distress, we've seen darkness, we've seen destruction, we've seen desolation, indignation, devastation, waste, the earth broken, the earth split, violent shaking, punishment, bloodshed, slaughter, gloom, testing, abominations, troubles, wars, lots of descriptive phrases. And the thing to note, God is the source. God is bringing judgment. This is not just the result of man's doing. God will use the consequences of man's efforts and man's work. But they are brought about by God himself. And one clear passage of that, yeah, Zephaniah 3, 8. You got that one? Therefore, wait for me, declare the day when I rise up to pray. Okay, when I rise up. In other words, God is the one that's initiating it. Keep reading. Indeed. My decisions to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out, out on them my indignation. My indignation. All my burning anger. Okay, all my burning anger. Or all the earth will be devoured by the fire of his heel. Do you notice the personal pronouns throughout that? God is the one that's bringing it. It's not just the earth falling apart. It's not just the consequences of man's decisions. So God is the source. And we have, you could add all of those references, the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. This is God's intervention. We could have read that Isaiah 24 passage when we were in it in verse 1. The Lord lays the earth waste. 
It's the Lord that's doing it. And we'll have another one there. Revelation 16, 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And it's in the context of the bold judgments. And Christ specifically, this is the passage that's not clear in terms of the tribulation, but if you correlate that with some passages in the book of Revelation, then you see that Jesus is the one that executes the judgments. Who's got, Mark's got uh, 522, and then skip and read verse 27. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment. Okay, all judgment is given to the Son. 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. Okay. Now, let's skip. Jim, why don't you skip to Revelation 6 and read verses 1 and 2. And this is the beginning of the the first series of judgments. They're called seal judgment because it's Jesus that is breaking these seals and opening up this scroll. And then we have in the text an indication that it's Jesus that's bringing these judgments about. And you see this little phrase in other passages as well, indicating that Jesus is the one that executes these judgments. You got it, Jim? 6, 1, and 2. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. Who's the Lamb, remember? Jesus is the Lamb, and he's breaking the seals. Keep reading. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, a boat, and a crown was given to him, and he went out green and Now there's a little phrase in verse 2 there. And a crown was given to him. Who's the giver of the crown? The lamb in this context. In other words, he is the one that's executing it. And if you read the, 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 the other seal judgments, you see that little phrase. It's, it's granted to them to take peace, verse 4, to take peace from the earth. Who's the one that's granting this? In other words, it's not, not just happening. Jesus Christ is bringing about these things. He's the one that's opening these seals. He's the one that's executing the judgment. That's right. The verse there, though, sounds like a lamb is being given. It's being given a crown. It doesn't sound like it's giving a crown because who's him? Who is the crown? Him. The crown is given to him. Look, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to the one that's seated on the white horse. So that's uh-uh. We'll come back. We're going to look at this gift of judgment and I'll expand upon it. He looks like Jesus. Jesus is on the white horse in Revelation 19, but this guy is not. This is a different one. He is very, he looks like Jesus. He fools people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is the beginning of the Great Tribulation where Antichrist begins his reign. And one of the things that's going to bring him to prominence is he's going to have a solution to the problem of war. It's a false solution. Yeah, the he... The rule at that time, that's what it is. Notice that the he goes to the one that's riding the horse, so the issue is who's riding the horse. And it's different from the one that's opening the seals. And it's granted, it doesn't tell us specifically, but I say that Jesus is the one that is granting this. In other words, this is a judgment. If that's not clear enough, read 19. Revelation 19... 15. Revelation 19. From his mouth... Now, this is Jesus. This is a description of the second coming. Keep reading. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may strike down the nation, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Okay, keep reading. And he treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And the he is Messiah, Jesus. It's a description of the second coming. Read 19 as well. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And who's the one that's seated on this horse? This is the white horse that Jesus is riding and they make war with him and he's going to execute judgment upon them. Make sense? So Jesus is the executioner. So this is God working, God bringing judgment upon the earth during this period of time. Yep, 1915 and 19. And you can correlate that also with chapter 6. And as you read that, you'll see each one of these is granted certain things. The implication is the one that grants it. I mean, who else can grant these things other than the sovereign God that has control over all of the events? And if Jesus is the one that's opening them, I think the reference would be Jesus executing judgment. So those are some of the major characteristics of that period of time. And that's a good place to take a break. Mm-hmm.